Jeremiah chapter 14. A, a theme seemed to arise from this particular chapter as I began to look at the verses and and particularly looking at the life of Jeremiah, the heart of Jeremiah himself as a servant and as a vessel, an instrument of God. You'll notice in verse 1 that there is a word from the Lord to Jeremiah directly. It says the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. And, and I want you to see that that is plural, so therefore it's, it's implying more than just one drought. Verse 2, he says, Judah mourns and her gates languish. They mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. Their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads because the ground is parched for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. In other words, the farmers. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field but left because there was no grass. And the wild donkey stood in the desolate heights they sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. There are going to be times as we go through the book of Jeremiah that uh, we see some gloom and doom. <laughs> but there's good reason for this. But one of the great paradoxes of the scriptures... One of the great paradoxes of the scriptures, by the way, paradox is, a, is an apparent contradiction, something that seems to be contradictory but isn't. So one of the great paradoxes of the scriptures has to do with God's use of brokenness in the lives of his servants. Brokenness. I think you'll find that this will be a key word in our study tonight. Brokenness. In other words, God loves to use broken things to bless other people. One day Jesus took a young boy's lunch made up of five loaves and two fish. And we're told that he blessed the bread and then he broke the bread, you see. And then blessed 5,000 men and their families with the broken bread. So much so that 12 baskets were collected of this bread. He used brokenness as a part of Gideon's battle plan against the Midianites. I don't want to spend too much time on the whole story, but in Judges chapter 7, verse 16, there, the 300 men were broken into three groups, so there were 100 men each. And we're told that Gideon divided the 300 men into three companies, Judges 7, 16. And he put a trumpet in every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. So think of that. Those, those were the weapons of Gideon's army. A trumpet and a, and a pitcher that had a torch inside of it or a lamp, as it were. 
You jump down to verses 19 and 20. It says, So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Breaking, you see. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers. They held the torches in their left hands and the trumpet in their right hands for blowing. And they cried the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And of course, we know the outcome of that particular battle. With 300 men, God conquered the Midianites. The Lord is also blessed by broken things. Just days before going to the cross, this incident took place. We see it in Mark 14, and in verses 3 through 6. It says, And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. And then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. I'll give you a hint of who that might have been. The treasurer, Judas. And they criticized her sharply. By the way, he wasn't alone. It seemed like others were a little concerned. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. You see, the Lord is blessed by broken things. Jesus was blessed by the brokenness of the flask and the woman's act of worship. But why is all of this important in our study of, the, of this particular chapter of Jeremiah? Well, we need to focus on a prophet who paid a great price to be faithful to his calling. That's Jeremiah. We need to focus on Jeremiah, who paid a great price to be faithful to his calling, and brokenness is the key. Brokenness is the key. Because brokenness can be simply defined as my will being broken to God's will. It is my ways being broken to his ways. My ways being broken to his ways. I think one of the greatest statements I've ever heard on the subject of brokenness was made by Damien Kyle, a Calvary pastor in Modesto, California. And he said this, and I quote, It is interesting to observe concerning the Lord that he has the unique ability to make something even more valuable by breaking it. And then he says, God puts a premium on broken things, especially on broken people. God puts a premium on broken things, especially broken people. Folks, we cannot walk the Christian life unless we are broken to God's will. We cannot proclaim and declare the gospel of Jesus Christ to many people unless we are broken to God's will. And this is one of the things that we see here today in this life, and we'll see it in a moment. 
But it brings to remembrance Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, where David says, For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God is blessed by broken things and He blesses brokenness. And you know that Jeremiah may have been bold before men, and we've seen this already in the 13 chapters that we've studied. Jeremiah may have been bold before men, but he was broken before God. But I have to also add that he was going through the process of breaking every time he has to face God during this particular ministry of his. And yet, please understand this. Take this home with you too. You know, we oftentimes tell you, take this little phrase home with you. I want you to take every phrase home tonight. But I want you to take this home with you. It was his brokenness that gave him his strength. It is our brokenness to the will of God that becomes our strength. What did Paul say? When I am weak, then I am strong. And in the next four chapters, the Lord gives Jeremiah messages dealing with the consequences of the sins of the children of Judah leading up to their invasion, their destruction, and eventual captivity. And interspersed among these messages are the prophet's own prayers to the Lord and the answers that he received from the Lord. Now, chapter 14 deals with a series of droughts. One of which they may have been going through during the time that Jeremiah received the message. Because as we read this text again, notice it says the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning the droughts. There it is, plural. So there were many droughts that would be coming. But then it says in verse 2, Judah mourns. And I want you to notice it's in the present tense. Judah mourns. Her gates languish, which means that her gates are weakened. Uh, they mourn for the land and the cry of Jerusalem has gone up. So this doesn't, cons- uh, this doesn't appear to be prophetic and yet it is speaking of droughts that are to come. And then it says in verse 3, their nobles have sent their lads for water. They went to the cisterns and found no water. They returned with their vessels empty. They were ashamed and confounded and covered their heads. Because the ground is parched, for there was no rain in the land. The plowmen were ashamed. The farmers were ashamed. They covered their heads. Yes, the deer also gave birth in the field, but they left because there was no grass. And the wild donkey stood in the desolate heights. They sniffed at the wind like jackals. Their eyes failed because there was no grass. Notice that in verse 1, the Lord was speaking of more than one drought that would have come upon the nation due to the rebellion against God. That's what I wanted to reinforce what I already said earlier. But this shouldn't have been a surprise for them. It shouldn't have been a surprise that if they're going to disobey God, that droughts were going to come. 
since the Lord warned them of these things before they entered the promised land. Now I know that I'm going to read this passage of Scripture probably for the third time now in the last few weeks in our study of the book of Jeremiah. But any time repetition is used, it is to reinforce what has been taught already. So Deuteronomy 28, verses 23 and 24, God is saying prophetically to the children of Israel who have yet to enter into the land of promise, He says, if you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you don't obey me, this is what's going to happen. Verse 23, and your heavens which are over your head shall be bronze, and the earth which is under you shall be iron. In other words, don't expect anything to happen uh, scientifically or naturally as if, you know, if we understand the process, you know, uh, uh, vapors are raised up and then then the water comes down and rain and and all of that. And they, they were dependent on rain all the time. But he says the heaven would be like bronze. I mean, that's not going to produce any rain. And the Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust from the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. So it says until you're destroyed, which means all of this is going to happen and then the worst is yet to come. Leviticus chapter 26, I just go back a little bit into the law, because notice what it says here. And after all of this, if you do not obey me, God says, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. I will break the pride of your power. I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. So not only once does he tell them, but a few times he warns them that if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you do not obey me, I will have to bring these droughts upon you. So even before the, the Babylonian invasion, uh, Judah was in mourning, and its cities were decaying like gates that sagged on their hinges. The gates languished. Well, they were sagging on the hinges. Why? Because they were weakened, and they were humbled, the people were, to the point of sitting on the ground crying out for relief. Servants belonging to the nobles, and and some believe that it it was even the children of the nobles, belonging to the nobles had gone to to draw water, Returned, uh, they returned to their masters empty-handed. They went to look in every cistern, and of course a cistern is a a large uh, hole in in the ground that was designed to catch water, rainwater especially, and, and, and they went to every cistern that they knew about, and they could find, they couldn't find any water anywhere. And they returned empty-handed because the cisterns that collected rainwater were dry and the servants would cover their heads from shame and confusion. Why is this happening? They needed to know why. They should have known why. Covering their heads was a token of deep grief turned inwards upon itself. The grief turned inwards upon itself as seen in David after having fled from Absalom, publicly demonstrating a spirit of brokenness. And it comes back to brokenness here, at least in the person of David. Because in 2 Samuel 15 verse 30, this is after uh, Absalom has usurped uh, the king uh, or or the position of king there in in, in Jerusalem and all. David flees from Absalom. It tells us in verse 30, So David went up by the ascent of Mount of Olives, and he went as he went up. I'm sorry, he wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went up. This was a sign of grief, deep, deep, turned inward grief. The farmers 
also felt humiliated by the lack of rain because the drought had made normal farming impossible. The land lay worse than fallow. When you talk about fallow ground, you know, fallow ground is, is ground that has been dried and you see it all cracked, you know, the lines in the dirt and mud when it dries up. But this land was even worse because it was cracked open completely. And verse 5 tells us that there was, a, there was so little grass available that the deer, which normally took good care of their newborn fawns, deserted them to find grass to keep themselves alive. They deserted their own fawns to keep themselves alive. The wild donkeys, known for their toughness, stamina, and their durability, could only stand and sniff the wind on the hills since they could find nothing to eat. Their eyes grew dim from lack of substance and sustenance because death was near. You know, it is, a quite, it is quite a serious thing to enter into a covenant relationship with the Lord simply because He will always keep His word either to bless or to chasten. It is a very serious thing to keep a covenant relationship with the Lord. And again, it is because the Lord will always keep His word. God is faithful. God will always keep His side of the covenant. But understand, He will either bless or He will chasten. If we are the recipients of His love, then we can expect to be the recipients of His chastening if we disobey Him. I think it's very clear that, the God, that God loved His people. We've seen that from the very onset of our study of the book of Jeremiah. God loves His people. But His people became proud and disobedient and rebellious. And then they began to worship idols and not to worship the God that, that had delivered them down through the ages. So this is a chastening. This is a discipline. You, you might want to use the word punishment here. But that's what it is. If you read Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, it says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. There's another good word. Chastening and correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects. Just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, this is merciful, and this is really the direction of all of this righteous anger that God has to bring about upon His people. Because He loves them, He is correcting them. But oftentimes, correction, when things have gone totally out of hand, people have gone totally far from God, that that correction is devastating. But the Lord loves, he, loves those He corrects, just as a father, the son in whom He delights. But never forget this. Never forget that the Lord is always faithful. The Lord is always faithful. We are not. As a matter of fact, Paul makes reference to that in 2 Timothy. When he says that the Lord, you know, that um, 
Even when we are faithless, He remains faithful because He cannot deny Himself. So the Lord is always faithful. But unfortunately, the people were not. So consider the plea made on their behalf in verses 7 through 9 now of Jeremiah 14. Getting back to Jeremiah. O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us, do it for your name's sake. For our backslidings are many. We have sinned against you. Oh, the hope of Israel, his Savior in time of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land and like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished, like a mighty one who cannot save? Yet you, O Lord, are in our midst. And we are called by your name. Do not leave us. Now there's some question by some who wonder whether this was a prayer of the people, which would have been an insincere prayer, or whether it was a prayer by Jeremiah to God for the people, even though God had already told them, don't pray for these people. But I'm going to give you a little hint. I believe it was Jeremiah that was praying. And the way that Jeremiah was praying, in his heart, broken before God, is that he wasn't praying about them He was praying about us. Do you notice, O Lord, though our iniquities testify against us? For our backslidings are many. We have sinned. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to uh, tarry for a night? Why should you be like a man astonished? Uh, Yet, Lord, you are in our midst, our midst. We are called by your name. Do not leave us. I'll talk about that a little bit more. But this is important because this is Jeremiah associating himself with his people. It is Jeremiah associating himself with his people. In this prayer, he includes himself, just as Daniel did in the ninth chapter of Daniel when he prays for his people. We have sinned against you. Nehemiah, when he prayed for his people in Jerusalem, we have sinned against you. And yet both, uh, all of them, I should say, were, were, were not the ones sinning against God. It wasn't Jeremiah. Jeremiah was being faithful to the Lord. Daniel was being faithful to the Lord. Nehemiah was being faithful to the Lord. But when they prayed, they prayed on behalf of their people, associating themselves with their people. He was, and I speak of Jeremiah, voicing a prayer for his people, admitting that their iniquities and their backslidings and their sins had been, a great, had been great. These terms indicated a breach of contract. I mentioned to you, be careful, be serious when you get into a covenant relationship with God because God's going to keep His side of the bargain. He's going to keep His side of the covenant. And so these terms of iniquities and backslidings and sins are indicating a breach of contract. And while the Lord had already told Jeremiah not to pray for his people, the prophet recognized and he rested upon the grace and the mercy of God. And he went to the Lord and he wanted God to stay with them. He said, don't leave us. Don't leave us. And folks, this is a good time for me to tell you this is how we are to pray for this nation, our nation. And let's face it, things are no better today for us than they were for Judah in their time. We live in a day and age where people are wicked. 
and evil. Paul described it as perilous times, dangerous times. But too often, the people of God give up way too soon, thinking that the nation is too far gone and too far away from God. We don't give up in praying for our country. We don't give up. God can always raise up from the ashes a people unto himself if we will be broken. And you see, the heart of Jeremiah was one that was broken before God. I've said said often early on in the study of Jeremiah that Jeremiah had a near impossible task and that was that he was going to go to the people and do what God had told him to do, be faithful in doing it. And, and even when he struggled with God, he did what he was going to do. And at the very end, not one person, not one person responded to Jeremiah's call. That's how far they were. But Jeremiah never gave up. He associated himself with his people and he said, we have sinned. We have committed iniquities. We have backslid. We have sinned against you. And how we need to remember the principle and the pattern of deliverance given by God to Solomon. I want you to turn, if you will, to Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. I know that we oftentimes read verse 14, especially when we're praying for specific things about our nation. But I want you to get up to, to, you know, I've got to give you a running start here to that verse. Because it says in verse 12 that the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and he said to him, I have heard your prayer. So Solomon has been praying. And he says, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. Speaking, of course, of Jerusalem and the temple. But then he says this, when I shut up heaven. And I want you to notice that word, when. Do you see it underlined there? We're underlining these words now so you can see them. When. I want you to notice it doesn't say if. He says when. In other words, this is a fact. It's going to happen. Not if, but when. You understand the difference? Okay, I know you do. But I'm a teacher and I want to make sure you got the idea here. When I shut up heaven, God says, and there is no rain. What are we doing? What are we dealing with in Jeremiah 14? Droughts. When I shut up heaven and there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, notice, if my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven. And will forgive their sin and heal their land. And I want you to notice that every one of those statements is necessary. If my people who are called by my name will first of all humble themselves. You know what that says? Be broken. 
be broken to God's will. Humble yourselves. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And secondly, pray. Really pray. Not just say you pray, but pray. And when you pray, pray. And seek my face. Look. Seek the face of God. You know the blessing I give from Numbers chapter 6? The blessing of Aaron, the Aaronic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you. Be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up His countenance, His face, shining and smiling upon you and give you peace, wholeness, the face of God. To have that before you cannot pray without seeking His face and seeking His blessing. And turn from your wicked ways. There's the kicker. There are ways to surrender. There are things to lay down. That's part of brokenness too. Because when you break your will, when your will is broken before God's will, that means those things are no longer your desires. Now you desire the things of God. And anything can be a wicked thing if it takes you away from the things of God. Anything. And then, he says, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. It's not to keep us from praying. If God has a specific plan for this country in these last days, a plan they may involve discipline, chastisement, judgment. Discipline and chastisement to God's people to awaken them, chast- uh, chastisement to God's people to awaken them, judgment toward those who have rejected Him. There's a difference. And then getting back to our text, Jeremiah then likens God to a stranger. He calls him that. A stranger in the land and to be an astonished man who can't believe what he sees. God, you're acting like you can't believe what you see. It brings to mind Jeremiah uh, chapter 2, verse 21. Even back then, this is what what God said, Yet I had planted uh, you a noble vine, a seed of highest quality. How then have you turned before me into a degenerate plant of an alien vine. Now, God doesn't ask that question as if He didn't know. But to stimulate in the heart of the people, why are you doing what I have called you not to do? Jeremiah uses that to say, Lord, you're like that. You're wondering. You're like astonished. 
about what you see, but you understand something. He did everything possible. And I say God did everything possible to produce good fruit, except force them. He never forced them to do it. Because if it's forced, then it's not love. If He forces us to do things, then it is not love for us to respond in kind. We are to love God. We are to desire to do everything for God because we love Him because He loves us. And He loved us first. It should be the desire of our heart to please God in everything that we say and everything we do and even what we think. But they decided, not God, they decided to turn from Him. And by doing this, they deteriorated into an alien vine that produced bad fruit, which certainly wasn't what He had intended for them. Yet all along, because of God's foreknowledge, He knew. And they had now passed the point of no return, and their hearts were still unchanged. He was patient with them. How patient does God have to be with His people? For how many years was He patient with them? We're not talking days or hours. You know, we're pretty good at patience. Minutes? Couple hours? Seconds? God was patient for years. He was patient. He was more than long-suffering with them. But at some point, that, that all has to pass. And this is the reason that the Lord told Jeremiah to stop praying for them. Because His judgment now would not be, nor could not be stopped. His judgment would not be, nor could not be stopped. So stop praying. And notice in verse 10 now of Jeremiah 14, this, thus says the Lord to this people. Thus they have loved to wander. Now I want you to notice a little bit of the, of, of, of the wording here because it says the Lord is saying to this people, but he says thus they, they have loved to wander. So who is he really speaking to? Speaking of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah prayed on behalf of the people. So he's saying to this people through Jeremiah, Thus they have loved to wander. They have not restrained their feet. Therefore the Lord does not accept them. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. Stop there and think of what we we just talked about. He's not doing this because, you know, they they made a little mistake right then and there. This is years and years and years and years and years of God giving them what they needed, being patient with them, being long-suffering with them, and, and continuing to tell them, obey me and I'll bless you. But now they were in their pride, they were in their rebellion, they were in their... In their, in their iniquities and in their backslidings. And he says, okay. He will remember their iniquity now and punish their sins. And then the Lord said to me, 
now even more directly to Jeremiah. Do not pray for this people for their good. Don't pray for them. You see, God's not coming down on Jeremiah because this is, by the way, this is the third time God's told him not to pray. So, you know, he's not uh, turning Jeremiah into a little pile of ashes because Jeremiah disobeyed him. You remember the heart of Jeremiah was for his people. How could he not pray for his people? And then he says, when they fast, I will not hear their cry. When they, burn, when they offer burnt offering and great offering, I will not accept them. But I will consume them by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Very quickly, the sword was Babylon. The famine and the pestilence, the result. The people loved to wander from the path that he had prescribed for them to walk. They just love to wander. It would be as if we would decide to wander into some kind of a park that had all kinds of warning signs. Please do not go down this path because some great lion is going to be meeting you when you go down this path. And you just are loving to wander. There's a sign, but you don't pay attention because the sign, you know, it's just a sign. It's got words on it, but they're just words. And maybe you had wandered in a little bit and you didn't see the lion, so you, you just kind of played around with that. And you said, you know, I think this is a, you know, have you ever seen those signs, uh, you know, uh, beware of dog? And then you look over the fence and there's this little chihuahua. I would be aware of that dog. I mean, chihuahuas are kind of feisty, you know. But you look, and some people, some people have actually put signs up, and they don't have a dog. You, you all don't do that because you don't lie. So you understand, though, the thing, you know. And people, when, once, you, once you cry wolf long enough and people don't see a wolf, they don't believe you anymore. You wander into some place, you decide, I'm just going to love to wander because I just love, you know, I don't, I don't listen to anybody, I just wander off and then all of a sudden you get pounced on, you see. You love to wander from the path. Hosea chapter 8, verses 11 through 14, listen, it says, Because Ephraim has made many altars for sin. This, of course, speaking of the northern kingdom. They have become for him altars for sinning. I have written for him the great things of my law, but they were considered a strange thing. For the sacrifices of my offerings, they sacrifice flesh and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. What was Egypt? Bondage. Captivity. Slavery. For Israel has forgotten his maker. Notice... And has, and has built temples. Judah also has multiplied fortified cities. But I will send fire upon his cities. And it shall devour his palaces. Hosea chapter 9 verse 9. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. They've wandered off. Deeply corrupted. And they love to wander. That means they don't love God. 
And even fasting and presenting sacrifices would not move him uh, to change either. I mean, it's hard to consider this, but all of this has to be classified as tough love. This is tough love by God toward His people. They were destined for the sword, famine, and pestilence. And as I I just said, the Babylonian army provided the sword. The results of the invasion would be famine and pestilence. Jeremiah would still try to intercede for his people in the next passage. Look at verses 13 through 16. Then I said, Oh, Lord God. That's a very popular phrase of Jeremiah's. Oh, Lord God. Behold, the prophets say to them, You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. And the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I have not sent them, commanded them, nor spoken to them. They prophesy to you a false vision, divination, a worthless thing. Those are spiritualistic things, aren't they? Divination, especially. And the deceit of the heart the deceit of their heart. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, whom I did not send, and who say, sword and famine consume, a uh, sword and famine shall not be in this land. By sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. And the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword. They will have no one to bury them them nor their wives, their sons nor their daughters, for I will pour their wickedness on them. Jeremiah was suggesting to the Lord that the people weren't totally responsible for their behavior. That's why he's saying, but Lord, the prophets did it. The prophets said to them. There's some implication here that he's saying, your prophets said it to them. The false prophets had misled them by promising lasting peace and prosperity. He threw some hints out that maybe the Lord Himself was partially responsible since His prophets were misleading the people. That would be all right and well, except for the fact that He had not sent those prophets. These prophets are not God's prophets. And I can tell you this, there are people today who are not God's prophets and they have airtime on TV and radio and whatnot and they're out there deceiving people from the truth of God's Word. And God is saying, I didn't send them. I didn't send them. As a matter of fact, I want to add this real quickly here, but turn to Matthew chapter 7 real quick. Matthew chapter 7. I have to hold this out here because I've got different glasses, but verse verse 21 and uh, through 23. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 and 23. Something that really, I believe, applies for our day and time today. Because of these false prophets here today who are just telling people over and over and over, listen, it's all about your prosperity, your happiness, your, your well-being, and all of this, and the world is just collapsing around everybody. That's just going to swallow them up. But notice what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. You see that? But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. That's why I tremble. 
at the teaching of God's Word. I cannot come up here with some kind of self-assurance as if to say I know everything. I don't know everything. I hope and pray that God has spoken in my heart to speak to yours. But I tremble at God's Word because I don't want to lead anyone astray. One thing that the Lord did with Jeremiah here is that he agreed that the prophets were leading the people astray through their false visions and their lies, and he, and he assured Jeremiah that they would suffer for what they had done. That's what this passage was that we just read. And one of the most humiliating things to the Jews would happen. Their families would be slain. Their families would be slain, and nobody would bury their corpses. And that was the most humiliating thing to the Jewish people. But the people were responsible for their actions because they should have known that the Lord had not sent those prophets. They should have known. They had one prophet. They had a few others. I mean, we've talked about other prophets that were contemporary to, to, uh, to Jeremiah. But they had this one prophet, Jeremiah, a voice in the wilderness, declaring the word of the Lord. And they were listening. The prophets that Jeremiah is is talking about that deceive the people, they were neither 100% accurate and their messages did not line up with the law of God. If you go back to Deuteronomy, let me read it to you, Deuteronomy 18 Verses 20 through 22, it says, But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, How shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. A lot of people today fascinated with Nostradamus. He was somewhat accurate in some things that he wrote, and he was very unclear about some of the things. And, but there were other things that he wasn't clear at all about, if you really do a good study of it. Therefore, he wasn't a prophet of God. Please understand that. Isaiah 8, verse 20 says, To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There's another key. If there's no light in them, then what are they going to give you but darkness? And so this is this in no way excuse the people for what they did. That's what God is saying. To, you know, to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's trying to say, well, but God, those prophets led them astray. They should have known better. See, that's a message to us today too. I heard so-and-so say this and this and this, but you better know the Word of God because you need to stand on the truth and not on what, what every wind of doctrine that comes around says. Please get into God's Word. And please trust God's truth. Because Jesus said that we need to know the truth because the truth sets us free. So no one was holding a gun to their head. Nobody was forcing them to follow these false prophets. Why? Well, they had the Word of God. 
And they had the prophet Jeremiah speaking forth uh, for the Lord. And yet they refused to listen. That was the problem. They didn't listen. And think about this. Even if a professed prophet performed miracles, they could still be counterfeits just as we read in Matthew 7. They could still be counterfeits since miracles are no guarantee of a divine call. By the way, if God heals people even in a false place, does not God... Should not God get the glory because God heals in spite of man, not because of man? There's a big difference. If God heals, He heals because He wants to heal, not because of man. So He heals in spite of man, not because of man. But think about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're looking at the future, we're looking at the things yet to come, but it's very near where we are today, and we better realize that this is going to deceive a lot of people. They're speaking of the lawless one, and it says the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power signs and what? Lying wonders. Not true wonders, but lying wonders. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. So some people are going out and doing these things without even knowing Christ. And performing things that are lying wonders in the eyes of people. And notice verse 11, And for this reason God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Ooh, that's a pretty heavy thought. A lot of people today having pleasure in unrighteousness, even though they say, oh, but I'm a Christian. Be careful. Be careful if you're saying that. In First Peter, it's, we're, we're told, be ye holy for I am holy, quoting from Leviticus. Be ye holy for I am holy. That's God's word to us. So these thoughts lead us to the next and last section of our text. We'll go through this as quickly as we can. But Jeremiah 14, verses 17 through 22. Therefore you shall say this word to them. Let my eyes flow with tears night and day, and let them not cease. For the virgin daughter of my people has been broken and with a mighty stroke, with a very severe blow. If I go out to the field, then behold, those slain with a sword. And if I enter the city, then behold, those sick from famine. Yes, both prophet and priest go about in a land they do not know. Have you utterly rejected Judah? Has your soul loathed Zion? Why have you stricken us so that there is no healing for us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. And for the time of healing, and there was trouble. We acknowledge, O Lord, our wickedness and the iniquity of our fathers, for we have sinned against you. Do not abhor us for your name's sake. Do not disgrace the throne of your glory. Remember, do not break your covenant with us. Are there any among the idols of the nations that can cause rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? Therefore we will wait for you since you have made all these. Here is where we see the importance now of Jeremiah's brokenness before God. You see, he felt about his people the same way God felt. When we are broken by God to His will, we will feel the same about people as God feels about them. He wept for them the way a father would weep for his virgin daughter who had been violated and beaten and left to die. Verse 17. Through prophetic vision, Jeremiah saw the land ravaged and the people taken captive to Babylon, which led him to turn to the Lord in prayer. Verses 19-22. 
And since he was commanded not to pray for the nation, he identifies himself with the people. Why have you stricken us? We looked for peace, but there was no good. In praying for himself, he was praying for them. He asked God to honor his own name and to keep his own covenant by sending healing to the land. And while God is always willing and able to keep his part of the covenant, the people weren't willing to keep their part. The prayer went unanswered. The prayer went unanswered because a faithful God cannot violate his own word. Jeremiah's hope was definitely on the Lord who not only brought calamity because of the sins of his own people, but who alone could also bring blessing. And when we think of brokenness and that kind of surrender to God's will, our thoughts should not be far from the Lord Jesus himself. Our thoughts should not be far from the Lord Jesus himself. Paul, in his account of the Lord's Supper, In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, he recounts and he says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, notice, he broke. He broke it. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And folks, the bread represents a broken life. A life fully surrendered to the Father's will. And Jesus said of himself, this is my body, which is broken for you. He submitted and surrendered himself voluntarily to the will of the Father, to be the Lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the people, for our sins. You see, when when we decrease, and this is some different language about brokenness, but when we decrease, what happens? He increases. When we're crucified, broken to the will of God, When we're crucified, He lives in us. Very simply, John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist said, He, Jesus, must must increase, but I must decrease. That decreasing is our brokenness. And in Galatians 2.20, I would have to say my favorite verse of Scripture. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live by flesh and in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified. What is that? Death. You can't be more broken than that. And to be dead to sin, dead to the old man, dead to the old world, and alive in Christ. And the great lesson of this text in Jeremiah 
is that the people were never broken before the Lord who made them except for the prophet. In other words, they were never broken before the Lord who had made them. The only one that we see here was the prophet, Jeremiah, who acknowledged their sin as if it had been his very own. Much like the sinless Lord Jesus who took upon himself the weight of the world's sin. And I close with these four verses of Scripture. You see, there's just a little bit of a type here where Jeremiah is acknowledging the sins of his people. But listen to what it says about Jesus because it's an even greater thought of the brokenness of Christ. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ was sinless when he died for us. Hebrews 4 verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. 1 John 3 verse 5, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. But lastly, a verse you all know, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And I want to focus on the word gave there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave to this world a son to be broken so that we might have life. He gave him to brokenness that we might be broken before him because you see God places a greater value on broken things and broken people. Let's pray.